All right, raise your hand if you're a kid in the room. Where are my kids at? Come on, where are you at? I see a lot of old people raising their hands, but it's true. I know who you are. All right. All right, kids, your job today is to learn something, anything, okay? So I want you to, I want you to pay attention because here's what you need to know. When you come to church, God is always wanting you to learn something about who he is and what he wants you to do in the world, okay? So you're going to help learn something today. Where are all the adults at? Okay, raise your right hand. I will not worry about noise. Perfect. Put your hands down. Right? That's good. Listen, we're starting the Advent season, right? And this is a season of anticipation, right? It's a season to look forward to celebrating the birth of Christ, but not just the birth of Christ, his return again, right? We already know that he was born. He lived, he died, he was resurrected. He's at the right hand of the Father, preparing a place for those who believe in him. And he is coming again to bring us home. So we have this anticipation. And every week in this Advent season, we're gonna go through the book of Luke, the first two chapters, not the whole book. That would be a lot in a few weeks. Chapters one, and then on, on Christmas Eve, we'll, we'll study chapter two. And we're talking about this anticipation leading up. So each week, we're gonna build and build and build. And hopefully, by Christmas Eve, you just can't take it anymore, and you have to be here to hear the end of the story. Okay? Does that sound like a plan? So we have this tradition in our family, right? Every, every Thanksgiving, we just had Thanksgiving, which was wonderful. It's the skipped over holiday, right? We go straight from Halloween to Christmas. I don't know why, but it's what we do. And at, at Thanksgiving, we have festivities. And then what we have is tradition in our home, which we have to do, right? It's a requirement that we, cel- or we celebrate by putting in white Christmas and we decorate the tree in the house, right? We decorate the tree in the house. And this year, right, we, we love watching Christmas movies, of course, they're about what? They're about all the things, right? Presents and the things. And there was a new one I watched last night. It was called A Boy Called Christmas. It's actually a really good movie. A Boy Called Christmas. And the whole premise of the movie was a people who had lost hope and there was a quest to find it. To find hope, but not just to find it, but to bring it back to the people who had lost it. And I love it because this is a common theme at Christmas. It's a common theme in Christmas movies. It's a common theme that we talk, we preach about it, we watch movies about it. But there are times in my life where I feel I'm not sure if I have actual hope. I feel like I'm optimistic, but I don't know if I'm actually living with hope. And there's a difference. Optimism is that thing that we feel, right, that we're like, oh, basically circumstances will work out the way that they're supposed to. That's optimism. Hope is waiting with tense expectation for something to come that we don't know is going to work out. We just believe it. It has faith and hope work together. And today we're going to talk about hope, not just having it, but what we do with it when we get it. Does that make sense? Christmas can be a little irritating if you don't have hope. It can be irritating if you struggle to hold on to hope. If you have optimism but not hope, right? You go, oh, more songs, okay, we're gonna hear about hope again. But if you struggle and you're not quite sure why you don't have it, it can be very frustrating at Christmas, right? Because everybody's all jolly and joyful and talking about all the things. And the question is, why do we struggle with that? 
Why do we struggle to have hope? And I think that sometimes, like if you're a kid, right? Well, I didn't get my present last year. I'm probably not going to get it this year. Me and you're going to be friends. Thank you. Just so you know, I appreciate it. It's a big conversation. We're talking together, right? Right? Maybe it's been an unanswered prayer. Maybe hope is hard to hold because that prayer didn't get answered. Right? Maybe you're in a unmet expectation of a friend or colleague. Maybe you've risked it all again to hope and were let down by a tough circumstance or just the fact that life isn't fair. Right, and so we come in maybe, you're like, yeah, this is great and all, but I'm not quite sure if I'm willing to have hope because the last time I had hope, it didn't work out the way I wanted. Right, and so we, we develop this this love-hate relationship with hope. And I want to tell you this. If you're here today and you're short on hope, God did not have you here by accident. Today's the day that you may receive the foundation, the grounding you need to hope again. I believe that you're here so that you can hope again. And to see that there are no accidents. If you are home from college right? And you've been questioning and wondering, what is there to actually hope in? Because all the things I see in this world don't offer very much. And you're right. They don't offer very much in this world. Today's the day you're going to find out that there is something to hope in again, but more importantly, someone to hope in again. As we jump into the scriptures, we'll be in Luke chapter one, verses five to 25. And this idea of hope, there's a, like, if you, if you got a rope, Kenny, can you hold the rope? Thanks. And you pull the cord, and you know, like, when it starts tightening and tightening, you know, right before that anticipation, you're like, Ugh! and like, right before it snaps, that tense expectation, the Hebrew word for hope, that's what it means. It's that kind of feeling. Thank you, that was really well done. Also, it means to wait, to wait with tense expectation. We're gonna look at what we're hoping for today. Where we find ourselves is the nation of Israel is in a dark time. If you look back to the last time they had heard from God was 400 years prior. They had not, they had, not had a word from God in 400 years, right? That's a long time. Kids, how long is 400 years? Have you ever waited 400 years for something? It's not the same as like, oh my gosh, I've waited 400 years for dinner. It's not like that. That was like 30 seconds. It feels like 400 years. This is a real 400 years, right? Teenagers, it's not like 400 years, like, oh my gosh, Chick-fil-A takes so long. It's like 400 years. <laughs> this is a real 400 years, an actual 400 years. They had not heard the voice of God. They had not heard. Now, the last thing they had heard was this. Malachi chapter four says this. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah, not the actual prophet, because he had come and gone. Before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I would come and strike the land with a curse. He's saying, I'm gonna send somebody before the day of the Lord, being Jesus. Somebody's coming to proclaim hope. All right? So this is where we find ourselves. And it was a pretty bad situation. 
right? The religious leaders were tied to tradition and were messing up the whole deal, right? The king, King Herod, he was a tyrant. He was terrible, right? So they have a terrible leader. They have terrible spiritual leaders, and they hadn't heard God's voice in 400 years. I don't know how you would get in that situation, circumstance. Some people went off the rails, but there were a couple that did not. There were a couple that stayed faithful to the Lord. And I want you to pay attention to the sovereignty of God, the fact that there are no accidents, that the people, the circumstances, the timing, the things that happened were all on purpose and by design. Here's what it says. Luke chapter one. This is written by the, uh, the physician Luke. He's the same one who wrote the book of Acts that we've been in, just to make sure that there's the correlation. You can tell there's a lot of similarities in the things that are written, the themes and so forth and so on. Verse five. In the time of Herod, the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of, uh, division, excuse me, of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. You can look up these priestly duties and the things in Chronicles and other places in the Old Testament. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly, but they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well along in years. So Zechariah and Elizabeth, they're well along in years. That's a nice way of saying they were old. I didn't say it. That's what they said. And they couldn't have children. Does it sound familiar? Old Testament, Abraham and Sarah. They were well along in years. She was barren. They couldn't have kids. Now, what's interesting, the first thing I want you to note is Zechariah's name. This is, gonna, this is one of those things you need to pay attention to. Jehovah has remembered. God has remembered. After 400 years of silence, Zechariah the priest is chosen to be a part of this story and his name is Jehovah has remembered. If there was a time to remember that God sees us, it was now after 400 years of silence. And his wife, God is my oath. You know why that's important? God was big on oaths. If you say something, you better do it. Don't tell God, God, I swear. Man, if you say, God, I swear, you better do exactly what it is you're about to say. He takes that serious. Even today, listen, don't say, God, I swear, and then go do it. That's why he said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. God, it says, God is my oath, meaning that God, when he says something, it's gonna happen, right? God is my oath, and Jehovah remembers. So he remembers, and he's faithful. Let's keep going. Verse eight says, once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving his priest before God, he was chosen by Lot according, that's not Lot the person, not Lot, that was Old Testament. He was chosen by Lot. They rolled the dice, right? By chance to see who was gonna serve in the temple. Now what's interesting here is even the times where we think are by chance, God is involved in the circumstances and the outcome. Zechariah, by chance, was given the duty that you would get once in a lifetime. So his once in a lifetime opportunity came by the role, the, the role of the dice, and he was chosen to go burn incense in the temple. Now, what you need to know about this duty is there, was, there were times, there were stories of people that it would put ropes, tie the ropes around the ankles of the priests when they went into the Holy of Holies in case they died, right? So they could pull them out so they wouldn't have to go in after them. Who says the Bible's not cool? right? So he's going in, right? So it's a big deal to go and have this, this opportunity to serve in this way. Jehovah has remembered who is married to God as my oath is chosen by a roll of the dice to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense, 
right? So he goes in and everybody else is outside praying and worshiping. Verse 11, then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. When I read this, I was like, why would you be gripped with fear? Oh yeah, that's right. Because angels a lot of time meant judgment. If you look in the Old Testament and you read the account of the angels, they were not these like fluttering fairies that were like little cherubs with flowing gowns that you put on the top of your Christmas tree. Those were not the angels that you see in the Bible. They were powerful and strong. They were messengers of God, a lot of times bringing judgment to those they talked to. So if you have an angel, right, you got a 50-50 shot. Zechariah is chosen by a roll of the dice to go do this really once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. God is, remembers, and he is my oath. And an angel comes and stands there at the right side of the altar of incense. And it says he's gripped with fear, maybe with a rope around his ankle. It doesn't say that, so I don't want to put it there, but maybe. And it says this. The first words out of his mouth were, don't be afraid. God, Zechariah has heard your prayer and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and a delight to you and many will rejoice because of his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink as the Nazarite oath would show and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel, will be, he will bring back to the Lord their God and he will go on before the Lord He'll go in spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. Malachi 4, it all fits together. Isn't that cool? See, the kids, when we're little, we're taught in, this, in the church that the Bible is all one big story. And then we turn to teenagers and go off into alien land for a while. And then we come back as adults, we forget that it's one big story. And so we have a hard time remembering it's all connected. And so what it is, is that we have to know nothing's by accident, right? Everything is, as God said, he'll turn the hearts of the fathers back to children. The angel comes and says the same thing 400 years later saying, oh, by the way, your son will be a joy and a delight to the people. He's gonna lead the way for Jesus. He's gonna lead the way for salvation to come to the whole earth. He's gonna lead the way for hope. He's gonna lead the way for redemption and, and, and restoration in the world. Right? What would you do if you were the guy, if you were Zechariah there? Would you connect the dots? Be dancing a jig? Woohoo! No. What would be your response, do you think? What is your response when you hear the truth of the scriptures, right? God is speaking to us. This is a living word because we serve a living God. We don't serve some dead God off in the history of the world with some dead scriptures that don't mean anything for today. We serve a living God in a living word that divides our soul and spirit that gives us, gets down in there. When you hear the word of God, what is your response? When you hear, hey, there's hope for you. There's redemption and restoration. I remember a time when it didn't sit that, it didn't sit that well with me. Let's see what happened with Zechariah. It says this, Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. His response was unbelief. It was unbelief. He heard the very direct, clear word from God, right? 
given to somebody whose name means Jehovah remembers and God is my oath, cast by the rolling of the dice to go do this thing to see the angel, to have this very clear direction. And he responds with unbelief. And it's easy, right? When we look at the scriptures and the people, oh my gosh, Abraham and Sarah, you screwed that up. I got Ishmael from that old thing. And man, look at this guy. Unbelief, if it was me, if it was me, we might've done the same thing, huh? How many times does God speak clearly to us? Maybe not with an angel, but through his word and we respond with unbelief. And it's not, a, it's not a condemnation for them. It's just, it's important to ask ourselves why. Why is it that we respond with fear? And here's what happened. He says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. Now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. And then everybody's freaking out, wondering, why is it taking so long? Did we forget the rope on his ankle? Do we have to go in after him? Why is it taking so long? So he comes out and the scripture says that when he came out, he couldn't speak. So he starts doing, it was the first game of charades on record. First word. And he starts motioning with his hands and they realize that something happened on the inside that, that meant that today was not a normal day at the temple. And then he goes home and Elizabeth realizes something great is gonna happen. And he wasn't able to speak. And it doesn't say this, but I wonder if God silenced him so he wouldn't spread his unbelief. I wonder if God made him silent and think about it for nine months so that he wouldn't inadvertently tell people his doubt and his worry and his unbelief. Because after nine months and you see the faithful word of God actually happen, then it was game time. And he proclaimed the hope to come. Second Corinthians 4 says, I believed, therefore I have spoken. Zechariah did not believe. And God silenced him so that he would not cause others to Walk in unbelief. So what do we learn from this? How do we take something from these two old people who couldn't have a baby, but now there's some angel that told them that they are gonna have a baby and he's gonna go before Jesus and all this? What does that have anything to do with our lives at all? Well, here's the deal. If you're anything like me, we struggle to hold on to hope and I think there's one reason that is shown here, fear. We're not unlike Zechariah, are we? We're scared to hope. And that fear leads to unbelief that there is anything to hope in. We're scared. I'm scared. I get fearful to have faith that God will accomplish what he said he's going to accomplish. And I think the reason is, is that the object of our hope is wrong. The object of my hope is wrong, right? I'll put my hope in people, right? We put our hope in one another. And it sounds good. I'm gonna put my hope in my parents. Now listen, kids, listen. I'm gonna brush the bubble just a little bit. Parents, I'm sorry. I'm actually doing you a favor. Your parents aren't perfect. They're not perfect, but they're doing their best. 
And it's important as parents, myself included, I put a lot of pressure on myself to do it right, to get it right so that my kids think that I'm Superman. I do this, it's, it's, it's a fault of mine. My job as a father is to point my kids' hope past me to God the Father. Because they can hope in him because he'll actually never let them down. They should put their hope in him because his word will never fail. They need to put their hope in him because I can't give them eternal life, he can. We put our hope in broken people. So the object needs to change. Maybe some of our fear is fear of judgment, right? Maybe we don't feel um, that God loves us and desires us at all, right? Maybe we fear that judgment just like Zechariah did in the altar of incense. Maybe we fear that we're not worthy and that keeps us from hoping, right? If you live a life where you don't feel worthy of God's love, you won't hope that he can love you because you are uncertain that you are worthy of it anyway. And that keeps you from hoping. Maybe we fear that God can't or won't be able to fix our stuff, right? Nobody who says that, Christians, we would never say this out loud. God is able, God is able. Do you really believe that though? Do you believe that God is able to fix the stuff you're in? Do you believe that the God of the universe that you come to worship every Sunday is intimately involved in your life? Do I wake up every day knowing that God is able to fix my stuff? And maybe the fear is that because I'm not capable, that translates to God not being capable, right? Because my boss isn't capable, God's not capable. Because my parents aren't capable, God's not capable. My wife, husband, kids, friends, enemies, whatever. If they're not, God can't be capable, the reason that Zechariah was filled with fear and unbelief was because he was focused on his and his wife's inability to have children. And he had forgotten, even as he ministered in the temple, that the one who spoke to him was faithful, that he could actually place his faith and hope in God. What are you afraid to hope in? What are you afraid to hope for? Is it a child that's far off? Maybe a son or a daughter? Maybe a parent? I know I talk about this a lot, but it's because we should never stop hoping for God to bring the lost home. Are you afraid to hope that God can change their life? I have that wrestle sometimes. What are you afraid to hope in? Are you afraid to hope that the circumstances you find yourself in can change? Maybe you're in a really terrible relationship or circumstance and you're like, I'm not sure that it can actually change and you just don't won't hope for it. You're afraid to even hope for it because what if it doesn't? Maybe you're afraid to hope for that job you've been so patiently waiting for, maybe not so patiently waiting for. And I'm not trying to be trite or simple. This is real life stuff, right? We have real things going on in the world. What are you afraid to hope for? Maybe you're afraid to hope that... Um, that there is something is eternal life. Maybe you're afraid to hope that, that there is a God who loves you and sees you and knows you. Maybe you're afraid to hope that there actually is forgiveness and restoration for your broken life. Whatever it is, uh, there is this, um, this idea that fear leads to unbelief and unbelief leads to no hope. 
But if we can get rid of the fear, that can lead to belief, and that belief can lead us to hope, right? So the scripture in 1 John 4 is relevant. It says this. It says that if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him, and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. God is love. Kids, say that. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. And in this way, he has made us complete among us. His love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. Listen, there is no fear in love. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear. Perfect love drives out fear. If we're trying to get rid of fear, how do we do that? We have to know perfect love. Because fear has to do with judgment, the one who fears is not made perfect in love. If God is love and it takes perfect love to drive out fear, where do we need to hope? We put our hope in the God who made us. If you're writing things down, write this down. Hope is held by the bold. Hope is held by the bold who risk disappointment and trust God anyways. Hope is held by the bold who risk disappointment and trust God anyways. Because this is the essence of why we don't hope and trust in God is because we don't want to have disappointment. We don't want to risk disappointment. What if? And this is how the enemy works. Listen, he sows, he sows doubt. God's not really going to take care of your son or daughter. God's not really going to be able to rescue you from this terrible circumstance. God can't provide for you a job. God can't sustain your life. God can't pull you out of depression. God can't free you from addiction. God can't heal the sick. God can't raise the dead. That's the lie, right? That's what creates fear and the risk of disappointment. But the scripture tells us that is not the God whom we serve. And hope is never meant to be held onto for yourself. It is meant to be proclaimed to other people. This is why John came. Not to be the person who leads the way, but to proclaim who's coming behind him. Right? He knew that he was going to proclaim the hope of the world, Jesus, who was coming for the salvation of the whole world. So what do we do? How do we, hold, how do we hold the hope? The first thing we have to do is consider the promiser. Did you know that when God created the world, remember there was a world before us. I know that we think we're the center of the universe. We're not actually the first group of people to ever be alive. There have been people for generations and generations and generations, far before we were ever thought of by anybody. And God created Adam and Eve and everybody since. And he breathed, everybody do a deep breath. <gasps> He gave you that breath and he didn't ask for my help. Isn't that weird? He didn't ask my opinion about how it should be done. It means this, that the God who created the earth and who has faithfully controlled and seen and moved and helped and healed and provided and sustained and given life to all through without my help or your help or anybody else's, that God is the one who makes the promises about healing and forgiveness and salvation and an eternal life. We have to consider the promiser. The promiser wasn't the angel Gabriel. It was God. The promiser isn't in your life, family or parents, right? 
the government, God forbid, any of it, just to be clear, right? That's not the promise or that's not where we put our hope in because none of the earthly people things give us what we need. They can't actually be trusted all the way because they're faulty and broken. And it just is what it is. It's not a condemnation, it's just the reality. So we have to consider the promiser. He who brought life can sustain it. Second thing is this, we have to get our eyes up. Keep your eyes up. I say this a lot. It's about perspective. Zechariah, Abraham, Sarah, Elizabeth, everybody's eyes were too low. They were on the earth, right? They were too low. They were seeing only their inability to have children. They were focused on the problem and not on the fixer. They were focused on the brokenness and not on the healer. Get your eyes up. Consider the promiser. That helps you know who to put your hope in. Keep your eyes up so that you maintain that hope. And the last thing is that we have to proclaim what we find. The reason Zechariah couldn't proclaim hope or tell people the good news was because he didn't believe it. Don't spread your unbelief. It's okay to doubt. Listen, it's normal for us to doubt and have seasons where we struggle with faith. Don't proclaim your unbelief because you have forgotten to have hope in God. But when you remember again, when you come to understand the goodness and faithfulness of the promiser and you're able to keep that perspective, we are to give it away. John didn't come again to be seen. He came to tell people about who was coming, Jesus. That's what this season's about, isn't it? The proclamation, the telling of the good news, right? Kids, do you like to tell secrets? Teenagers, we already know you like to tell secrets. Adults, you're not that great at keeping secrets. We love to tell people good news, right? Oh, did you know she's gonna have a baby? Oh, did you know, hey, I'm going to Disneyland? Oh, hey, did you know? Right? I got a new car. They're not even realistic commercials. Lexus commercial. Anyway, a whole different thing. <laughs> Nobody puts a bow on the Lexus in the driveway. It's not, anyways. But you get love to tell good news. We have to proclaim the hope that we find. Could you imagine what, what Christmas, how we celebrate it differently if we actually lived with hope? If we actually lived with the reality that we have a firm place to stand that the God who we are here to celebrate and worship is real and true and loves us and has a hope and a future for those who believe. That's pretty incredible. What would happen if you engaged people that way? To tell them that. To tell them that. Christmas has become so watered down, hasn't it? This is not new. We say this every Christmas season. Well, it's not the way it used to be. It's gotten so watered. It's getting worse and worse. The world, if you watch the news every day for five days, I bet I won't see you here again. You'll become so hopeless and depressed and down because you will have believed something that they're telling you, which is there is no hope. And it's not true. I'm here to tell you the truth. There is hope to be found. It is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And it's because God put himself in human flesh, lived the perfect life that we need to. When he died, he did not die because he deserved it. He did it for us because he loves us. And he rose again to show that the power of God is real and that there is hope for the future. And if you're looking for hope, you don't have to look to the world. You look to Jesus. 
If you're looking for stability and a firm place to put your feet, put it in Jesus. God is trustworthy. He has never let us down. It doesn't mean that life will be fair and that other people won't let you down. But God is faithful. And you can be sure that your hope will land firm. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, the hope we have in Jesus. Thank you, God, for our kiddos being here today. I pray that you would have spoken to them too. And for those who are struggling with faith, God, that they would not feel condemned, but that they would know that they have a place to go, a person to go to, Jesus. And Father, for the things that we're afraid to hope in, our kids or marriage, a job, the world, Oh God, help us to readjust our perspective, to consider the promiser, you, to keep our eyes up and then to proclaim that hope because we have strong faith. Oh Lord, would you find us filled up today, challenged to hope again, to believe that you can take hold of a lost soul, that you can heal, that you can restore, you can forgive. And God, that you are loving right now those who don't know that you are. God, as we respond with prayer and giving and music, that you be pleased, Lord, and that you have your way in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I'm going to ask that you stand. I'm going to ask our prayer partners to come forward. If you need to pray for yourself or somebody else, or you want to know Jesus, this is a great time to do that. They'll be standing right up front as we sing this song. If you want to give, uh, we're not passing anything right now, but you, there's a box outside on the way, or you can do so online. You can sign up for that. There is the best way to do probably, but let's stand together and let's respond in this time uh, with conviction and passion because we have hope in him.